Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. I love to read, but I found that as life gets increasingly busy, I don't have time to read all the books I want to read, so I rely a lot on reviews. If a book gets a lot of five-star reviews or if somebody I respect says, this book is amazing, then I'm more likely to read it. While it's not my favorite genre, I sometimes enjoy reading romance novels. Recently, I came across this book, Pride and Sensibility, which seemed like an intriguing title. I looked at the back cover to see who had endorsed it, and I found this endorsement. I ardently love and admire this book and was signed by none other than Mr. Darcy. If you're into romance novels, you understand that an endorsement from Mr. Darcy is pretty powerful. So I decided I better put this on my list of books to read. I also found another book. Check out the endorsements on this one. My soul delights in the words of this book, said Nephi. Search this book, said Moroni. And the Savior himself said, A commandment I give unto you, that ye search this book diligently. I thought, wow, what book is this? I flipped it over and it was the book of Isaiah. I said, I've got to read this book. Now I say this up front because I know some of you may have thought, why are we having a class about Isaiah? This is supposed to be a course about Jesus, but Jesus himself tells us to study Isaiah. We want to spend some time with Isaiah because he's a key witness of Jesus Christ. Sometimes Isaiah gets a bad reputation. People say, oh, it's just too hard to understand Isaiah. Let's skip it. It reminds me of a story I heard once. Two missionaries were in a dark alley in Miami. Some muggers approached them and asked for their wallets. When one of the missionaries reached into his pocket to take out his wallet, the mugger got scared and shot the missionary in the chest. The missionary fell back, but then got up. The muggers were frightened and ran away. His companion said, how are you alive? The missionary reached into his shirt pocket and pulled out a small copy of the Book of Mormon. He showed his companion that the bullet had been lodged in the front portion of the book and said, nothing can get through the Isaiah chapters of 2 Nephi. Well, that joke might make you or I smile, but I don't think Nephi's laughing. Nephi quotes more than 15 chapters of Isaiah because, as Nephi tells us, Isaiah truly saw Jesus Christ. Nephi testified that the words of Isaiah would be of great worth unto them in the last days, for in that day shall they understand them. We live in the latter days, and if we take Nephi at his word, we can be confident that Isaiah's words have great value. I'll be honest, for many years, I struggled to get a lot out of Isaiah. But one of my colleagues shared with me an approach to Isaiah that really helped me understand his words. I realized that Isaiah doesn't have to be hard. At the heart of this approach is a one-page map that covers key locations, countries, people, and dates important to understanding Isaiah. Although many of us know about discrete events, like that the ten tribes were scattered, for some of us, our ability to connect and relate multiple events during 730 BC and 530 BC could be strengthened. By putting all this information on one piece of paper, which I'll refer to as the Isaiah map, we can more easily understand Isaiah's words. I'll walk you through this map, and then we'll look at some examples of how the map can help us make sense of Isaiah's words. You might find it helpful to draw out your own copy of this map as we discuss it to help the ideas solidify in your mind. As we zoom in on the upper left-hand corner, we find a couple of foundational passages. In 1 Nephi chapter 19, verses 22 and 23, Nephi states, 
I, Nephi, did read many things to them which were engraven upon the plates of brass, that they might know concerning the doings of the Lord in other lands, among people of old. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah, for I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. Note that Nephi prefaces his quotation of Isaiah by saying that it is about people of old in other lands. Although Isaiah can be likened to our day, we should not be surprised to learn that many of his writings pertained to the people of his day. We can think of likening as the process of saying Y is like X. When studying Isaiah and other scripture, we perhaps too frequently focus on the Y, the application, before understanding the X. In this case, the X is the historical events about which Isaiah prophesied. As we better understand the X, the historical context, we'll be better able to liken it to our lives. The second passage in this upper left-hand corner is 2 Nephi 25.6. After extensively quoting from Isaiah, Nephi provides some important keys for understanding his words. Nephi says, I have dwelt at Jerusalem, wherefore I know concerning the regions round about, and I have made mention unto my children concerning the judgments of God, which hath come to pass among the Jews, according to all that which Isaiah hath spoken. It is clear that understanding both the regions round about, geography, and judgments of God, possibly a reference to contemporary history, are essential to understanding Isaiah. We can see the importance of knowing geography and contemporary history by trying to interpret the following sentence. Obama is going to the Big Apple to meet with the UN. He is angry at Beijing. Most of us can understand this hypothetical sentence, but would a person living 2,000 years from now understand it? This statement, written in the jargon of our time, could be very confusing to people not familiar with the geography and politics of the early 21st century. Similarly, learning a little bit about the history and geography of Isaiah's time will help us better understand Isaiah's words. A few other details from the upper left-hand corner of the Isaiah map. First, Isaiah prophesied around 740 to 700 BC. This helps us connect with contemporary events of Isaiah's lifetime. Also, and I acknowledge this is a simplification of the situation, we can think of Isaiah as having at least two major divisions. First, a key theme in Isaiah 1 through 39 is judgments of God against prideful nations. Second, a key theme from Isaiah 40 through 66 is messages of hope and restoration for exiled Jews. Let's turn to the rest of the information on the left-hand portion of the map. Between about 1050 and 950 BC, the 12 tribes of Israel were united under the reigns of kings Saul, David, and Solomon. But after King Solomon's death, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, often referred to as Israel, the northern kingdom made up of the 10 tribes, and Judah, the southern kingdom, made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The map provides three facts about these two kingdoms. First, Judah's capital city was Jerusalem, also referred to as Zion. Second, its principal tribe was Judah. And third, it had a series of Davidic kings. Its two most important kings during Isaiah's lifetime were Ahaz and Hezekiah. To the north was the kingdom of Israel, which primarily consisted of the land originally designated for the ten tribes of Israel. Three important facts to remember are, first, the capital of Israel was Samaria. Second, the dominant tribe was Ephraim. And third, one of its kings in Isaiah's time was Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Further north was Syria, with the capital city of Damascus and King Rezin. 
You might be feeling overloaded with information, but don't worry. This is going to help you understand Isaiah. Isaiah explicitly writes about Ahaz, Pekah, and Rezin. Knowing their names will help us understand the context of Isaiah's message. Because Isaiah refers to kingdoms by their dominant tribe or capital city, this information is important to know as well. This was current events for Isaiah and recent history for Nephi. Students of Isaiah should understand it just as students of American history should know relevant names and places. Let's turn to the right-hand portion of the map. Between 730 and 530 BC, there were three major superpowers in the region. The first was Assyria, who in the 730s to 720s BC destroyed the kingdom of Israel and carried away its inhabitants, as described in 2 Kings 17. You've heard of the lost ten tribes? This is where they get lost. It's because of Assyria. Remembering the information in the upper left-hand corner of the map helps us see that Assyria's conquering of Israel takes place during Isaiah's ministry. Because part of the literal scattering of Israel happens during Isaiah's lifetime, we should not be surprised that this is an important theme in his ministry. Let me pause on the map for a moment just to illustrate how understanding this history helps us not only understand Isaiah's day, but also the time of Jesus. Remember that around 950 BC, the United Kingdom of Israel split into two countries, Judah and Israel. So already the people in Jerusalem had some negative feelings towards this other country to the north where the ten tribes lived. Do you remember what their capital city was? Samaria. After Assyria scattered the ten tribes, they brought people from other geographic regions into this land. These people were known as Samaritans, based on the capital city of Samaria. As the centuries passed, there were sharp disagreements between the people in Jerusalem and the Samaritans. Understanding this background gives us insight into many events from the life of Jesus including the parable of the Good Samaritan and Christ's conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. It also helps us understand why James and John wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan city and makes the Savior's response more poignant. These and other accounts from the New Testament become more powerful as we realize that there's almost a 1,000-year history of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Okay, back to the map. We were talking about the superpower Assyria. Although Assyria attacked the southern kingdom around 700 BC, it did not defeat Jerusalem. However, in approximately 625 BC, Babylon, a new superpower, defeated Assyria, and between 605 and 586 BC made multiple incursions into the southern kingdom, eventually resulting in the destruction of Jerusalem. This is what Lehi prophesied about, why his family left Jerusalem, because Babylon was going to invade. Babylon carried some of the Jews into exile. Note that while the inhabitants of the northern kingdom were scattered and lost to history, those in the southern kingdom, primarily from Judah, continued to maintain their religious identity during this time of exile. The third and final superpower on the map is Persia. In 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to their homeland if they chose. We've covered a lot of historical background, and right now you might be thinking something like, okay, who cares? How is this even helpful? In just a moment, we'll focus on four key phrases from Isaiah, and in each case, we'll see how information from our Isaiah map can help us understand them. But first, let me share two other tips for understanding Isaiah. First, remember that Isaiah is written in poetry. It's not all meant to be taken literally. We do the same thing in our day with song lyrics. Consider these lyrics from a song that was popular a few years ago. If you ain't here, I just can't breathe. It's no air, no air, no air. I walked, I ran, I jumped, I flew, right off the ground to float to you. There's no gravity to hold me down for real. 
We could joke that perhaps 2,000 years from now, people might analyze these words in a class and say something like, during this time period, there was an environmental crisis such that people became very concerned about a lack of oxygen. Some even speculated that global warming would lead to the eradication of gravity. Of course, that is not the meaning of the lyrics. One needs to read between the lines and grasp the overall message. In this case, the author is in love with another person and uses the idea of not being able to breathe and floating to express this thought. Similarly, Isaiah often writes poetically. When we read that kings and queens shall lick up the dust of thy feet, we don't need to ask ourselves which kings or queens licked the feet of which ancient person. Rather, we can grasp that one general meaning Isaiah is describing is how Gentile rulers will assist the people of Judah. Second, remember that Isaiah's words can be fulfilled in different ways. President Dallin H. Oaks said, The book of Isaiah contains numerous prophecies that seem to have multiple fulfillments. One seems to involve the people of Isaiah's day, or the circumstances of the next generation. Another meaning, often symbolic, seems to refer to events in the meridian of time when Jerusalem was destroyed and her people scattered after the crucifixion of the Son of God. Still, another meaning or fulfillment of the same prophecy seems to relate to the events attending the second coming of the Savior. Thus, we will likely find multiple correct answers to the question, what did Isaiah mean in this passage? To best liken Isaiah's words to ourselves, it is particularly helpful to understand what they might have meant during Isaiah's lifetime and for the generation that followed. Let's start with our first phrase, a virgin shall conceive. This comes from Isaiah 7, which is similar to 2 Nephi 17. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, we read, And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Did you notice that this is a hard verse? I bet a lot of us have read it and said, this chapter is the worst. I don't understand it at all. But if we remember the map, these names make sense. This verse simply says that two nations, Syria and Israel, are coming to attack Judah, and Ahaz is scared. In verse 2 we read, And it was told the house of David, that's Ahaz in Jerusalem, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is the capital of Israel. And Ahaz's heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. This is not good. But then the Lord tells Isaiah to go and give Ahaz a message. Say unto Ahaz, Take heed, and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands. In other words, don't worry about these two countries, the two smoking firebrands, coming to attack you, Syria and Israel. Verses 5 and 6 say, Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. In other words, Syria and the northern kingdom, Israel, plan to install a puppet king in Judah who will do their bidding. Is this plan going to work? Look at verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. So God is saying, Ahaz, don't worry about Syria and Israel. Things are going to work out. Turn with me to chapter 8. The Lord gives some specific counsel to Ahaz at this time, when Ahaz is full of fear. He says, Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. 
let me pause for a moment and share something that's a little silly. When I was younger and struggling to understand Isaiah, I would sometimes latch onto any phrase I understood. In my missionary scriptures, I marked two words from this verse, associate yourselves, and wrote in the margins, I should associate with other people. Now, is it good to associate with other people? Yes. But is that what this verse is saying? No. It says, associate yourselves and you will be broken in pieces. In context, the Lord is saying to Ahaz, don't make any alliances. Don't associate yourself with other countries. Don't get help from them. Just trust in me. Does Ahaz follow this counsel? Keep your finger in Isaiah, but jump over to 2 Kings 16. In my experience, a lot of us don't read 2 Kings, but it can help us a lot with Isaiah because some of its chapters cover the same time period as Isaiah does. In the first few verses of chapter 16, we learn that Ahaz is a wicked king who does all sorts of evil sacrifices. In 2 Kings 16.5, we read, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. Can you see how this is the exact same context as we were just reading in Isaiah 7? Notice what Ahaz does in 2 Kings 16.7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive and slew Rezin. Ahaz did exactly what God told him not to do. He made an alliance with Assyria, and in a sense, it seems like he solved his problem. Assyria destroyed Syria and scattered Israel, so things worked out for Judah. But this would have dramatically negative consequences in the next generation, which we'll come back to in a little bit. But first, let's return to Isaiah 7. In the context of giving Ahaz counsel about the impending attacks from Syria and Israel, we read, The Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depths or in the heights above. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. It might seem like Ahaz is acting righteously by not seeking a sign. However, Ahaz's response actually appears to be false piety. Although Ahaz did not want a sign, Isaiah told him a sign would still be given. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. When you hear this verse, probably the very first thing you think of is Jesus Christ. But let's pause for a second and think about this verse in an historical context. Ahaz is worried because two countries are coming to destroy him. Isaiah says, don't worry, the Lord's going to give you a sign. A child is going to be born. And as it says in verse 16, before this child is old enough to know good from evil, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Can you see how that's clearly a reference to Syria and Israel being destroyed? So the Lord has to be referring to another child because Jesus won't be born for 700 years. If you think about it, this makes sense. If Ahaz is worried that these two countries are attacking him and Isaiah says, don't worry, here's a sign. Jesus will be born 700 years from now. That's not a real comforting message to Ahaz. It would be like if you're having a terrible problem in your life right now and you come to me for comfort and I say, oh, don't worry, the second coming will be in 500 years. You'd probably say, that's great, and I'm happy for that, but I need help now. So who could this other child be? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1. As we read these verses, notice how similar they are to chapter 7, verses 14 through 16. 
The Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll, and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalahashbaz. Note that Maher Shalahashbaz means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. That sounds ominous, but in context, it's saying your enemies are the ones who will soon be destroyed. So it's a positive message. Verse 3 says, I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name Maher Shalahashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother. The riches of Damascus, that's a reference to Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's a reference to Israel, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Do you see how these verses have the same message as Isaiah 7, 14 through 16? A child will be born, and before the child is very old, Israel and Syria will be destroyed. You might be wondering, are you saying that... When it says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, that it's talking about Maher Hashbaz and not Jesus? Here's what Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught. This sign was given to the Old Testament King Ahaz, encouraging him to take his strength from the Lord, rather than the military might of Damascus, Samaria, or other militant camps. There are plural or parallel elements to this prophecy, as with so much of Isaiah's writing. The most immediate meaning was probably focused on Isaiah's wife, who brought forth a son about this time the child becoming a type and shadow of the greater, later fulfillment of the prophecy that would be realized in the birth of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a dual fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Commenting on the same passage Matthew wrote concerning the birth of Christ, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew quotes Isaiah 7:14 and says it is talking about Jesus. Elder Holland taught that in addition to talking about Jesus, it is also referring to a child born during the time of Isaiah. Now, some of you might be saying to yourself, wait a second, it says a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And the only virgin birth I know of is the Virgin Mary. So how can this relate to Maher Shalahashbaz? If we were to go back to Isaiah 7:14 in Hebrew, the word that we have translated in English as virgin doesn't have the connotation of not having had sexual relations. It simply means a young maiden. Matthew reads Isaiah in Greek where this connotation is present, and so he reads it in that way. A person might think, well, it doesn't say a virgin will conceive and call his name Maher Shalahashbaz. It says she will call his name Emmanuel. So it can't be talking about Maher Shalahashbaz. Well, by that logic, it couldn't be Jesus either because it says his name will be Emmanuel, not Jesus. This is actually an easy issue to resolve. Emmanuel means God is with us. Maher Shalahashbaz is a sign to Ahaz that God is with him. God will help Ahaz be victorious in battle. With Jesus, the term Emmanuel has a more literal meaning as God, meaning Jesus, came to earth to dwell with us. Ahaz was worried about physical destruction, but Jesus came to save us from spiritual destruction. So Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled in two ways. I hope this discussion makes these verses clearer. Understanding the details of the Isaiah map can help us make sense of the story as a whole. It can help us see that just as God was sending a sign to help Ahaz, Jesus Christ has come to help each of us. Let's turn to our second phrase, be not afraid. Ahaz bribed the king of Assyria, and things were good for a time. But in the next generation, Ahaz's son Hezekiah stopped paying tribute to the king of Assyria. This led to Assyria coming to attack Jerusalem. 
They destroyed several cities in Judah, and 180,000 Assyrians were outside the gates of Jerusalem. Hezekiah was terrified. His people were doomed. I don't know if you've ever had a situation in your life where you felt like there was no hope. Your back is to the wall, and there is no possible solution. I've had a situation like that a time or two in my life, and I hope I don't have any more of those, and I hope you don't have any either. It's really scary. This might be a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important for us to pause and remember that Hezekiah was a real person. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, the people feel like story characters to us. These individuals are more than story characters. They are real. In the area where Hezekiah's palace stood, researchers have found a seal bearing his name. I wouldn't base my testimony of the Old Testament on that, but it's an archaeological tidbit reminding us that Hezekiah is real. The situation he is facing is real. It may seem like an old story, but we are reading about a real person with a real problem. Hezekiah is responsible for his whole nation, and they're about to die. In this context, Hezekiah says, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Think about what a terrible metaphor that is. If a woman is about to have a baby and she doesn't have the strength to bring forth the baby, she and the baby will die. Hezekiah says that's what's going to happen to his people. In this context, Isaiah gives a message from the Lord to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid. Let's pause and highlight this message, Be not afraid. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord had a similar message for Ahaz when he said, Fear not. This is a message Jesus consistently gives. Consider a couple of examples from his mortal life. At the Last Supper, right as he was about to experience the most difficult 24 hours of all time, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Repeatedly, Jesus says, Do not be afraid. He promises, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. In an earlier generation, Isaiah said to Ahaz, Fear not, trust in God. But Ahaz was afraid, and he didn't follow the Lord's counsel. Now, in this generation, the Lord tells Hezekiah, Don't be afraid. And Hezekiah puts his trust in the Lord. We read, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. It must have been hard for Hezekiah to trust God with an Assyrian army on his doorstep. Consider these taunts that were made by the head of the Assyrian army. He says, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? On whom dost thou trust? Thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt? How then will you put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. In other words, you're doomed. Egypt can't save you. Your own power can't save you. God can't even save you. Let's pause in the storyline for a moment and talk about what it means to trust in the Lord. Part of fully trusting in God means not being afraid. If I'm afraid, it's probably because I don't completely trust God. When we're faced with a problem, do we turn to heaven or do we focus our attention on what we can do to solve the problem? Or maybe some of both. Let me explain something I call the trust matrix. There's two axes. The y-axis indicates our level of effort in solving a problem and the x-axis measures the extent to which our trust is in God. So the trust matrix consists of four quadrants. A person can conceivably have temporal success in any of them. Is it possible to trust in God, do nothing, and have success? 
Yes, sometimes God is merciful. Can people do nothing, trust in themselves, and still succeed? Of course, some people get lucky. Can people have success if they work very hard and trust in themselves? Yes, lots of people have success this way, but it's kind of a stressful place to live. I think you'll agree with me that the sweet spot is to fully trust in God and cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. This is the spot where we pray as if everything depended on God and then work as if everything depended on us. It's where we really want to be. Where do you see yourself on the trust matrix? Consider various aspects of your life, such as physical health, professional accomplishments, personal and family issues. Are you on a different place on the matrix in each of these areas? If we were to put Ahaz on this matrix, he's probably somewhere in the upper left-hand quadrant. Isaiah told Ahaz to trust in God, but Ahaz wanted to trust in his own ability to make an alliance with Assyria. In contrast, Hezekiah worked hard to build fortifications, and he also fully put his trust in God. Sometimes people wonder, how can I know whether I need to trust in God more or whether I need to work harder? In other words, do I need to move further up on the trust matrix or further to the right? Of course, there's no general answer to this question because the answer depends on our personal circumstances. If we're wasting a lot of time in our lives, then yes, maybe we do need to do more. In my experience, though, if you're the kind of person who's participating in this class, you're probably not in the lower quadrants doing nothing. You're more likely off the charts. Some of us might be so stressed and worried about things that we can't control that we need to do less and trust more. In some cases, rather than being anxious about the final 0.5% that we can do to get from 99.5 to 100% of our best efforts, we may be better off spending more time on our knees, expressing trust in the Lord. If you're a person who's off the chart, how could you shift from trying to do too much and worrying about it to more fully trusting in God? There are many approaches. One I love is in Doctrine and Covenants, section 123, verse 17, where the Lord says that after we've cheerfully done what we can, we should stand still. Sometimes we have to turn our heads to heaven and say, all right, God, this one's on you. And that's what Hezekiah does. He offers a prayer pleading with the Lord for deliverance. In essence, Hezekiah says, I can't defend my people. It's out of my control. God, I am turning to you. Someday when your back is to the wall, I hope you'll remember Hezekiah's prayer of trust. I hope you and I will be able to let go and stand still, fully trusting God and letting his power work in our lives. After Hezekiah's prayers, a miracle occurred. Isaiah tells us that an angel smote the Assyrian army and Hezekiah's people were miraculously saved. God doesn't always work this kind of miracle in our lives. Sometimes the miracles don't come in the way we want or the timing we want. But when we fully trust in God, things will work out. Remember Jesus' words, be not afraid. Let's turn to a third phrase. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hand. In Isaiah 49, 14, Zion says, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. That's a beautiful verse on its own, but it becomes even more powerful as we understand the historical context. What's happening in this verse? Who is Zion? And why is Zion saying, The Lord hath forgotten me? If you remember the upper left-hand corner of our map, it tells us that Isaiah 40-66 through has a focus on messages of hope for exiled Jews. Isaiah is describing the time period when Jews are in Babylonian captivity. This is a 70-year trial. That's intense. Most of us haven't had a 70-year trial. Sometimes we stress out over 72-hour trials and feel like God has forgotten us. Remember that in this context, 
Jews in exile are experiencing a trial lasting for decades. In response, the Lord says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And then the Savior says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. The Hebrew word that's translated as thee in this passage is you, singular. It's not, I have graven all y'all in the palms of my hands. It's, I've graven you personally upon the palms of my hands. So in context, the message of hope is, Jews in exile, don't worry. I have not forgotten you. And if he didn't forget them in their 70-year trial, he is not forgetting us, even if it seems like our trial is lasting a long time. I love how Sister Bonnie H. Corden applies this verse to us. She said, The Savior knows you and loves you. If you wonder if that is true, you need only contemplate that he has graven you upon the palms of his hands. Let's turn to our final phrase, The prey of the terrible shall be delivered. Again, in the context of Isaiah 49, Isaiah offers a message of hope to Jews in Babylonian captivity. The Jews are discouraged. They say, I have lost my children and am desolate, a captive. I was left alone. The Lord responds, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. And they shall bring thy sons in their arms and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. Let's refer back to our map. In an historical context, who are the Gentiles that are going to help the Jews get out of Babylonian captivity? It's Persia. We read, And kings, like King Cyrus, shall be thy nursing fathers, and queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. Isaiah is speaking metaphorically and says to the Jews in captivity, Don't worry, you're going to receive help from the Persians. Continuing, we read, Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? In context, Judah is the prey, and Babylon is the mighty. Do you take prey from the mighty? If a lion is munching on a goat, do you go steal the goat from the lion? No, you do not take prey from the mighty. But in this instance, God says, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey, Judah, of the terrible, Babylon, shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, that's a cool history lesson. Jews are in captivity. Persia saves them. But I'm taking a course about Jesus Christ. What does this have to do with the Savior? Nephi's brother Jacob tells us in 2 Nephi chapter 6. He quotes these same verses and briefly alludes to Persia helping the Jews. But Jacob focuses on how this passage points us to Christ. The Jews are in Babylonian captivity. They need a Savior, and that Savior is going to be Cyrus. Did you know that in Isaiah, Cyrus is referred to as a lowercase m, Messiah? Jacob says that just like the Jews were in captivity, you and I are captive to sin and death. We need a capital M, Messiah, a Savior, and that's Jesus. Cyrus and Persia are types of Jesus who will free us from the captivity of sin and death. Jacob also shifts the time period from Jews in captivity to the latter days and uses phrases from Isaiah 49 to explain what Christ will do for us. He says, In the latter days, they that fight against the covenant people of the Lord shall lick up the dust of their feet, and the people of the Lord shall not be ashamed. For the people of the Lord are they who wait for him. 
for they still wait for the coming of the Messiah. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer. As we are waiting for the second coming of the Messiah, Jacob says, keep waiting. Don't be ashamed. Trust in him. The storyline of Jews being saved by Persia is so powerful when we see that it's also about us and how Jesus will rescue us from captivity. Today, we've talked about four phrases from Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive, be not afraid. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hand and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. I hope as we've talked about these phrases that your intellectual knowledge and ability to see these words from Isaiah in a historical context has increased. I believe Isaiah is much easier to understand when we focus on how his teachings relate to the circumstance of his day and the next generations. Naturally, as modern prophets have explained, Isaiah's words have multiple meanings. Sometimes we may focus so much on the multiple meanings that we overlook Isaiah's historical context and thereby weaken our ability to liken his words to ourselves. My biggest hope is that because you now better understand Isaiah's context and history, you more clearly see how Isaiah points us to Jesus Christ and his power to save each of us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He tells us, Be not afraid. I have graven thee upon the palms of my hand. Because of him, we find ultimate deliverance. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.